0: Uh, Any baseball fans? Yeah? All right. So baseball season's in full swing. My dad loves watching the Giants, and he tries to watch every single Giants game that there is. And whenever there is a Giants game that's being played but isn't on TV, he thinks something's wrong with his TV. (laughs) And so he calls me to see if there's any way that I can fix it and get the game to show up on his TV, which of course I can't, but that's what he would like. And whenever I'm over at my parents' house in the summer, there's usually a Giants game on. And if that's not on, there's some other baseball game on. And I've just got to say, and I'm sorry if I'm stepping on any toes today, but it's just not my game so much. I know some of you love baseball, but it's not my game because it's not uncommon for each team in a baseball game during the course of those nine innings to have racked up something like one run and two hits, right, during the course of the whole game. Because it's kind of become, become a pitcher's game. And anymore there are far more strikeouts and kind of lazy pop flies than there are any hits or runs or exciting plays. So for me it's kind of like watching paint dry to watch a baseball game, but to each their own. So. But by way of illustration this morning, that has something to do with our text, there was a pretty famous baseball game about 10 years ago now between the Detroit Tigers and the Cleveland Indians. And if you're a baseball fan, you already know what I'm talking about. This game between Detroit and Cleveland, Armando Galarraga was pitching for the Tigers. And in that game, Galarraga almost became the 21st pitcher in major league history to throw a perfect game. A perfect game. A perfect game means that the same pitcher pitches no fewer than nine innings. He pitches the whole game without letting a single batter from the other team onto first base or beyond first base. So no hits, no walks. No hitting the batter so he can advance to first. No fielding errors even. Just 27 up, 27 down. Game over. That's a perfect game. And until this game, only 20 people had ever done that in the history of Major League Baseball. Well, in this game, between Detroit and Cleveland, Galarraga threw a perfect game, through eight innings. And in the top of the ninth, the first batter he faced looped a little fly ball out to center field, and the center fielder made this great over-the-shoulder catch. And so that was one out in the ninth. And then the second batter came to the plate, grounded out to the infield. Two outs in the ninth. One more out. It's a perfect game. 27th batter comes up. Jason Donald taps a soft kind of ground ball towards first base. And the Tigers' first baseman, Miguel Cabrera, sticks his foot on first base exactly like you're supposed to, sticks out his glove, catches that ball on the one hop just like you're supposed to right before the runner puts his foot on first base. Right? That should have been it. Runner's out. 27 up, 27 down, except that the umpire... The first base umpire, Jim Joyce, ruled that the runner was safe. I mean, he wasn't actually safe. You watch video replays all over YouTube. Clearly, the runner should have been called out and the game should have been over and Galarraga should have had himself a perfect game. But the ump ruled him safe. Safe. And so Galarraga had to face a 28th batter and that guy grounded out and then the game was officially over. And later the umpire apologized with tears coming down his face to Galarraga for blowing that call. So in baseball, umpires aren't perfect, right? They're good most of the time, but they're not infallible and sometimes they make bad calls. But in baseball... You have to have umpires, right? So that to the best ability possible, it can be ensured that both teams are fairly and impartially measured in terms of what they do in the ball game. There have got to be umpires to mediate the game, to judge every play in the game. And that's true of all sports, right? Football and basketball and soccer and hockey have referees. Tennis has line judges. Every sport has some kind of judge or umpire or referee, an arbitrator, to objectively judge both sides and try to make the right call one way or the other on every single play according to the rules of the game. Now, just for the sake of illustration... Not to be irreverent, but just for the sake of illustration, what if, in that baseball game 10 years ago, what if the eternal, almighty, sovereign, omnipotent God was the umpire? Well, then Galarraga would have been the 21st pitcher to throw a perfect game in Major League history, right? Because God would not and could not make a bad call. And again, just for the sake of illustration, what if God was either the first baseman or the runner? What then? Well, then you wouldn't need an umpire, would you? And in fact, if there was an umpire in that circumstance, with God either on first base, or running to first base. If there was an umpire, it would be a massive insult and offense to God, whichever position he was playing in the game, because by virtue of who God is, in his utterly unique position as the eternal sovereign, all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, holy creator of all things, There is and there can be no one in all of creation who can stand in judgment over Him. Right? It would be utterly ridiculous to think of a first base umpire ever presuming to make a call about whether or not God was safe or out or on base. In the book of Job... You all know Job's story, right? God sovereignly allowed Satan to test Job. God himself had proclaimed Job to be the most faithful, righteous man living on the earth. God allowed Satan to test Job by allowing Satan to take everything that Job had away from him. His property, his family, 10 children, his servants, his livestock, his health, everything except for his wife who became bitter and bickered against God and Job he lost everything in his life. And all throughout the book Job wonders why all of this has happened to him. Did he do something wrong? Was he being punished for some specific sin? What was what was the purpose? of all of this affliction, of all of this suffering in his life. And he feels like all throughout the book of Job that God owes him some answers. Well, In Job chapter 9, Job is pondering all of this. He's contemplating everything that he's suffered. He's wondering why. And he comes to this conclusion. In Job 9, this is verse 32 and 33, listen. He says, God is not a man like I am, that I might answer him and that we might come to trial together. You hear what he's saying? Job was feeling like, feeling like, what God had done, what God had allowed to happen to him wasn't right, something was wrong with it. But, but what court could Job go to what judge could Job go before who could stand between him and God to try to decide whether or not Job had been wronged? Where could Job go to have an arbitrator between them? Because to have an arbitrator between them would mean that they both, Job and God, were subject to the judgment of that arbitrator. And in verse 33 of Job chapter 9, Job himself recognizes there is no arbitrator between us who might lay his hand on us both. Some of the old Puritans used to translate that word in the Hebrew for arbitrator. Umpire. There's no umpire who can judge God and say whether or not he's on base or out of bounds. There is no arbitrator between us who might lay his hand on both of us. In ancient times, that's how a judge pronounced a sentence in a court setting. He would lay his hand on the one with whom he found fault. And Job says, somebody could do that to me, but who could possibly do that to God? No one can find find fault with God. So Job is confused. Job is upset. Job is looking for answers to his agony. But he will not assume. He will not proclaim. He won't say that in his own judgment, in Job's judgment, God has done something wrong Because even though he's struggling, he does trust God. Listen to the words of a Puritan commentator named Joseph Carroll who explains what Job is saying in Job 9.32 and 33. Carroll says, It is as if Job had said, I would gladly refer this whole dispute between us to an arbitration council But the Lord who is engaged in this with me is above the arbitration of men or even angels. Creatures may not meddle with any of His ways or matters or words. And that's exactly right, isn't it? Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become His counselor? The thoughts of God are higher than our thoughts. The ways of God are higher than our ways. And so who is there that could ever possibly stand in judgment in any sense whatsoever over Him? Who is there who is worthy to act as an umpire and decide whether or not God is on base or out of bounds? And that seems pretty basic, right? We know that no one's worthy, that no one can act as an umpire, an arbiter between God and man, because God Himself is the ultimate umpire and the all-holy, all-righteous judge of everything. And yet, here's the reality. Even though we know that, every single form of unbelief in this world and all throughout history is the result of people trying to place an umpire between themselves and and God as a as a final court of appeals well if if God is going to be who he says he is and if he is going to reveal his word then I am going to have to have somebody judge whether or not that's trustworthy or believable or acceptable to me Every form of unbelief comes from making the court of final appeals something or someone other than God, and usually it is self. Instead of saying, I humbly submit to all that God says and does, the human creature dissatisfied with what God has said and done and who He even is, attempts to put God on trial and then appoints themselves as the judge, as the umpire, and places their own reason and even their own desires in judgment over God and His ways and His words. And if we're honest, there are all kinds of ways that all of us, even as true believers, tend to still do that all the time. We can tend to measure God's word by what makes sense to us, by what we feel comfortable believing and willing to accept about what it says and what it means. And we can tend to measure God's will by what we are comfortable and what we find acceptable submitting our lives to. Joseph Carroll says, take heed of measuring God by your own selves in your approving of things as if because you approve it, therefore surely God does. Your reason, your desires, your will are not the umpire, are not the arbitrators that stand between you and God. Now last week in In Acts chapter 12, at the end of that chapter, we saw what happened when King Herod tried to measure God's will by his own, by Herod's own will. He tried to consign the glory that belongs to God alone to himself. He tried literally to make himself out to be a god instead of submitting himself to God and to God's perfect will. This week... In the very next portion, in the beginning of Acts chapter 13, we see what happens when someone tries to measure God's Word by their own self, by their own reason, by their own understanding. When they try to stand in judgment over God's Word, when they try to oppose God's Word and say, it's not believable, it's not reasonable, it's not acceptable. That's the essence of this story. Let's look at it here. In Luke 13, or in Acts 13 rather, Luke is shifting the focus back now geographically from what was going on in Jerusalem and Caesarea to what's going on back up in Antioch. You remember that a group of Jewish Christians from Cyprus and Cyrene had decided that when they became believers in Jesus, the best thing to do, now that they had come to faith and been born again, The best thing to do was to not go where all of the other Christians are and create some kind of Christian commune isolated from all of the godless pagans and all the worldliness out there. No, these Christians decided that the best thing to do and the best place to go was where the most unbelievers were, where the most pagans were, to where things were the darkest Spiritually speaking, in order to bring the light of the gospel to bear in the darkness. And so they had gone to Antioch because it was the biggest, most cosmopolitan, most worldly, most ungodly and idolatrous city they could think to go to. And as a result of the light going into the darkness of Antioch, many Gentile people there in Antioch heard the gospel, came to faith in Jesus, believed, and a thriving church was established there. And so, remember then in response, the church in Jerusalem had sent Barnabas up to Antioch to encourage the young believers there and to disciple those new Christians, and Barnabas was so excited about what was going on there, so gladdened in his heart that he went and found Saul and brought Saul back to Antioch, and together they spent more than a year there teaching and discipling and growing this church. So here we are again now in Antioch. Acts 13, verse 1, Luke tells us there is this growing and diverse core of of leadership that's been established now in that church. Prophets and teachers from all kinds of different places. Barnabas, who was from the island of, of Cyprus in the eastern Mediterranean Sea, and Saul who starts after this point going by the name of of Paul. And he was from Tarsus, way over in the western part of the Mediterranean region of Sicilia. And Simeon, who was nicknamed Niger because he had dark skin, and that's what that word means, And, and he was from some part below northern Africa. And Lucius was a man from Cyrene, and that's modern day Libya, so northern Africa. And Menaean was from Palestine, and he had grown up in a very privileged class of people in the very court of of Herod. The, The Herod, not the one that we just saw get eaten by worms, but the one who had executed John the Baptist and interrogated and tried Jesus. Menaean was was a childhood friend of his and grew up serving in his court and was, was a wealthy, privileged person. But here now, he's become a follower of Jesus. And even in the church in Antioch, a gifted teacher and preacher of the Word. Luke wants to give us just a quick glimpse here of how the Gospel of Jesus Christ really does transcend any and and all ethnic and social and economic distinctions that human beings tend to make between themselves and other human beings in this world. right? It it didn't matter where these guys were from. It didn't matter what color their skin was. It didn't matter whether they were Jewish or Gentile. It didn't matter whether they were wealthy or, or poor. All that mattered is that they had been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that God had united them together in Christ and given them all gifts to use in His kingdom. And so here, Saul, this this Jewish ex-Pharisee from the far western reaches of the Mediterranean, and Barnabas this gentle, kind-hearted, encouraging Cypriot from the east, they've come together in Antioch. And they've raised up a core group of leaders there who would serve the church and shepherd the flock and feed the Christians there in Antioch with the true food of God's living, active Word. That's what they intended to do. And in verse 2, they're all there together for a church leadership meeting. And the meeting consisted of worshiping the Lord and fasting. Which just means this. It means that they were so focused on God's glory and God's goodness and God's awesome sovereign power that the blessings that they were expectant to see from God were blessings that were more important to them than food even itself. They were much more concerned about and much more consumed with the, the Thy Kingdom Come kinds of prayers than they were with the Give Us This Day Our Daily Bread kinds of prayers. What they were most hungry for was for God to glorify Himself through them by by building His kingdom and continuing to pierce the darkness with the light of His truth and His love. So while they worshipped and fasted and prayed, God the Holy Spirit answered and spoke audibly His sovereign will to them. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So see, after this rich season there in Antioch that had gone on for the, the past year, it was time now for Barnabas and Saul to go, to depart, to serve God and His kingdom somewhere else. And the others who had been raised up had zero inclination to feel envious That they hadn't been selected for some special calling or ministry somewhere. They had zero inclination to feel doubtful that this was going to be good and best for the church in Antioch. Or even defiant and try to persuade Saul and Barnabas to stay. You can't leave. We're just getting going here. They weren't inclined to think that or say that. They weren't inclined to feel discouraged even. And to contend with God that the church in Antioch wasn't going to be able to survive without Saul and Barnabas. Because they weren't focused on themselves. They were focused on the glory of God. They were focused on the will of God. They were not subjecting God's will to their own whim. They were focused on God's sovereign power and ability to provide whatever they needed. They were living out the wisdom of Matthew chapter 6 to seek first the kingdom and the righteousness of God and then trust God to add to them whatever else they needed in this world. That's what the church was doing. And so as they prayed like that, as they worshipped God like that, right? Not, not just, God, here's what I want now. It's your job to give it to me. But as they prayed legitimately, Thy will be done on earth. In our church, in our lives, as it is in heaven, whatever your will is, as they prayed like that, God answered. And you can expect that too. You can expect Him to answer when your prayers are focused first and foremost on His glory and on His will for our lives. Maybe He's not going to answer audibly like the Holy Spirit did here in Acts 13. But when we are truly concerned with and consumed by what's going to bring God the most glory, what's going to please Him the most, what's going to honor Him the most, what's going to advance the cause of His kingdom the most, that's when we can expect Him to answer those kinds of prayers. And we can expect that when He does... He's also going to do it in a way that brings great blessing to us because He's not uncaring as we've seen. He's a good and kind and compassionate and faithful Father and He delights in giving His children bread and not stones. And so here, the church in Antioch, hearing the Word of the Lord, satisfied that this is the will of God, laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul and sent them out from Antioch to go to Seleucia and by way of Seleucia on to Cyprus. And this begins the second major portion in the book of Acts. Chapters 1-12 through recorded for us how the Holy Spirit sort of gave birth to the church on the day of Pentecost and, and caused, even through the providence of persecution caused the gospel to spread from Jerusalem out into Judea and from Judea out into Samaria and even to the beginnings of the Gentile lands in Caesarea and Antioch. And now that that threshold has been crossed, in chapter 13 we begin to see the fulfillment of the rest of Jesus' commission for the church to to bring the gospel and cause it to spread out even further out across the Mediterranean and, and Aegean seas toward the very ends of the earth and make this a global church. And so Saul and Barnabas leave Antioch and they get on a boat to go out and start to cross the Mediterranean. And the first stop is Cyprus. Cyprus is the place where Barnabas had been born. So it was home to him. It was familiar territory for him. And so the first step that they took was a familiar step. And when they got to Cyprus, they also decided to strategically start preaching the gospel in a place that was familiar. Where did they preach first? They preached to people that they had something in common with. They preached it to Jewish people like they were. They were Jewish people, ethnically at least. And the Jewish people that they preached to were preaching in Jewish synagogues or worshiping in Jewish synagogues, which is what Saul and Barnabas used to do before they came to faith in Jesus as their Messiah and their Savior and their King. And I I think God is just showing us here, you know what, it's okay to do that. It's okay to find things that we might have in common with certain unbelievers in order to find opportunities to proclaim the gospel truth of the love of Jesus Christ to them. It's okay to say, who can I, who can I go to? Well, who has God by His providence put in my life that I have something in common with? Common heritage, common experience. Maybe even common sufferings that, that we've endured in our past that might help someone else who is suffering now to know the love and the compassion of God in and through us. Or even common sin that we once lived in bondage to and now have been delivered from. We might have a unique opportunity to call other people who are living in that specific sin to repent and to believe on Jesus. And they might, they might have an inclination naturally even just to listen to us more because of that commonality. Finding common ground in some way is not a bad thing. It can be a very good thing. It can be a very wise thing. It was the first thing Saul and Barnabas did. And of course the greatest thing that all human beings have in common, which qualifies us to call people to repentance and faith in Jesus no matter who they are, is the fact that we're all sinners. And we have all, no matter who we are or where we've been or what we've done, fallen desperately and infinitely short of God's glory. And we all desperately need the salvation that only comes in the name of Jesus. So, in an ultimate sense then, your heritage, your ethnic background, your cultural background, your experiences, your earthly status whether in the world's estimation you grew up with privilege or whether you grew up in poverty. Ultimately, none of that actually matters. Because what we have in common with every human being is is our spiritual poverty. Because even if we grew up in worldly affluence, we were all dead in our sins and trespasses before God. Even if we grew up in white, evangelical America, we don't need the grace of God any less than anyone who grew up in a Muslim or Jewish or Hindu or pagan country. And even if we grew up in the most miserable, wretched kinds of sin and rebellion against God imaginable, He is no less capable of glorifying Himself through the the clay pots, the earthenware vessels that we are, by causing the glorious treasure of His gospel love and grace to, to pour through our now redeemed lives. And so that's what we're going to see as we move ahead in the chapters of Acts. Saul and Barnabas are going to go to increasingly unfamiliar places that they have nothing in common with the people there. Gentile territories in the Roman world, and they're going to bring the Gospel to people that are completely unlike them in in any way, shape, or form, except that they need the grace of Christ. And in fact, here in chapter 13 and verse 9, Luke kind of prepares us for this reality that even though he's Jewish, Saul is going to become known primarily, not as an apostle to the Jewish people, but as the apostle to the Gentiles. And Luke gets us ready for that by telling us that Saul was also called Paul. Saul was how his name was pronounced in the Jewish community, and Paul was the Roman counterpart to that name. And that's the name that he is going to be identified by now for the most part from here on out. Because more and more, it's going to be the Gentiles that he's focused on bringing the gospel to, even though he's Jewish. So it goes without saying that even though Paul had less in common with the Gentiles who he'd be preaching the gospel to, God was more than able to overcome any of those differences Differences of language or culture or heritage or ethnicity or experience or religious background or understanding. God was able to overcome all of those things. God used the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, to blow through any and every barrier in order to bring sinful people from every tongue, every nation, to the same saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that he had brought Paul to. And we can take great confidence in that as we go out into this world. And look here. Look at verse 6 as they begin to do it in, in Cyprus and bring the gospel to Cyprus. Starting with the Jews, but then all of a sudden, boom, they're given the opportunity by the providence of God to preach to an affluent, influential, Gentile person. Paul and Barnabas are there in Cyprus along with John Mark, who, by the way, is the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. They're all here in Cyprus preaching the Gospel in the familiar setting of the Jewish synagogues all across the island of Cyprus. And the Roman proconsul of Cyprus, like the governor of, of the province that was the island of Cyprus. A guy named Sergius Paulus says he was an educated man. And he was in a high position of authority there. From an earthly standpoint, they had nothing at all in common with this guy. He's Roman and they're Jewish. He if he believes in any god it's the emperor in rome and the pantheon that they worship there and he's a position he's in a position of power and authority and these guys are nobody to him and he summons Saul and Barnabas to come to him so that he could hear the word of god that they were proclaiming now he's never heard of these guys They're not celebrities all over the known world, right? They don't have their own show on the Trinity Broadcasting Network. They haven't made any kind of name for themselves in any way that the world would respect. They've not achieved any measure of worldly success. They're literally just Jewish nobodies. And they're just going around to Jewish synagogues teaching about the guy that they're saying is the Jewish Messiah, why should Sergius Paulus care? Well, the answer is simply that in the providence of God, he did care. And so Saul and Barnabas get this invitation to the proconsul's palace in Cyprus. It's basically like getting an invitation to come preach the gospel and proclaim the word of God in the state capitol before Gavin Newsom. Well, that had never happened, right? No, don't assume that God can't do that. And don't assume that if God did do that, that nothing good can come out of it if it was you who got invited to go. Well, I couldn't convince him. I couldn't persuade him. Of course you couldn't. But the Holy Spirit could. The Word of God could. Behold here what the power of God and the Word of God can do even in the face of unbelief and opposition to God and his word Sergius Paulus had working for him a Jewish fortune teller a Jewish sorcerer and Paulus employed him as a sort of as a sort of prophet because he claimed that he had some sort of mystical inside line to divine wisdom. And he probably claimed that he even sometimes was able to foretell the future. And any earthly person of authority would think that that was an asset to have in your employ. And so he had this guy working for him. But the guy was a false prophet, Luke clearly says here. And very ironically, his name was Bar-Jesus. Bar means son in Hebrew. Jesus is actually a very common name in this time and in this place in the world among the Jewish people because it derives from the Hebrew Old Testament name Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves Remember in Matthew, that's why the angel told Joseph that when Mary gave birth to the promised child, that he was to call the child Jesus, because he would save his people from their sins. So here is this fortune teller, this mystic, this sorcerer. The other name he goes by is an Aramaic name that means magician. It's the name Elamis that means Magician. And this is who this guy puts himself off to be. His his Hebrew name is literally Yahweh saves. And he claims to have inside access to divine wisdom and knowledge. And he's working for the Roman proconsul in Cyprus. And when the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, summoned Paul and Barnabas to come to him so that he can hear this word, this message that they're teaching and preaching, Elymas, the sorcerer, bar Jesus, the false prophet, he opposed Saul and Barnabas. He was trying to influence his boss to not believe the message that Saul and Barnabas were preaching and teaching. He was trying actively to undermine the gospel and the Word of God. He was raising objections to the Word of God. He was raising objections to Saul and Barnabas' teaching. Now, this is something that happens all the time, right? This is something that Christians of all ages, and and especially, and even in our age, encounter all the time. Believers in God, believers in the Word of God, take a stand. They proclaim the truth of what God's Word says, and all kinds of people in the world raise their voices in objection and raise arguments in opposition to God's Word. They stand in judgment over God's Word. They act like umpires and they say, that, that word is not safe. It's out of bounds. It's unreasonable. They say it's unreasonable to believe what God's word says. They say it's unreasonable to believe that there even is a God. And if there is, they say that the way that He reveals Himself in the 66th books of the Bible don't make any sense and aren't reasonable to believe, at least in certain ways. And what people who oppose the word are doing, again, is putting themselves and putting their own reason in the place of the umpire to determine whether or not God's word is on base or out of bounds. And the reality is this again, not only can no creature ever presume to stand in that place of judgment over God and His Word and His truth, but also all human creatures are by nature spiritually depraved and committed to not just standing in judgment over God's Word and and proclaiming whether or not it's reasonable and to what extent. They're actually committed to suppressing it. We saw last week in Romans chapter 1, they suppress His truth. Not because there is anything that is inherently unreasonable about God's truth, but because sinners who are committed to their unrighteousness will always declare that it is unreasonable for them to be subject to God and His truth. Because that would mean that they're not sovereign over their own lives. That would mean that their desires are not actually the most important things in the universe. And that the ways that they want to live their lives according to their own wisdom and desires apart from God, that that's not actually the measure of what's right and good and beautiful in this world. And sinners by nature... They will not and they cannot admit that or submit to God's sovereign reign and His truth in their lives. That's the reality. So, of course, when we proclaim God's truth, when we just read it and let it speak for itself, people are just going to object to what it clearly says. And there's going to be opposition to it from people who are steadfastly committed to doing what is right in their own eyes. In their rejection of God's authority, they have the audacity to put Him on trial and stand in judgment over Him and over His word and over His ways and declare whether or not, in their estimation, God and His word are good or true are reasonable. That's what the world does. Now, here's the really pathetic thing. The pathetic thing is when people who claim to be believers in God, who say that He is their Lord, who say that the Word is His Word, when they bow before that worldly unbelief and cave under the pressure of that kind of opposition And instead of standing against it, start to concede ground to it. You're right, it's not really reasonable to hold you to the standard of what God's Word clearly says right here. So let's see if we can interpret it a different way than what it clearly says. What God says is is perfectly straight. But you're not liking that, so let me see if I can bend it in a way that makes it more acceptable to you. Does that help? Christians do it all the time. Churches do it all the time. Pastors do it all the time. It's pathetic. That's where we get the godless compromise that we're living with today with the LGBTQ agenda from inside Christian churches. This is where we get these these pandering concessions by Christians, by churches, by by whole denominations who say that the world's definition of social justice that is in fact rooted and grounded in a, a political philosophy that was built on the absolute denial that there is a God. But Christians will pander to it And say that that definition of justice has to be the lens through which we understand and interpret and implement God's justice in the world. The really pathetic thing is not just when unbelievers have the audacity to stand in judgment over God's truth and holiness. It's when the church lets them do it and concedes the ground and says, you know what, you're right. It isn't good to let God's word be the final arbiter of truth and goodness and beauty in the world, the world and, and fallen human reason needs to be the umpire. Needs to decide whether it's safe or not. Needs to have the final say as to which parts of God's word are acceptable. That's what, that's what churches are doing today. And that is not at all, right, what Saul did when he faced opposition to God's word and whatever objections Elymas bar Jesus raised against God's word, right? Paul didn't go, well, you've got, you know, he's making some good arguments here, governor, proconsul. So let's see if we can figure out a way to, to turn it and bend it. in in a way that would make it more palatable to you? No. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stood in the face of this guy who called himself Yahweh saves. The son of Yahweh saves. Looks him right in the eye and says, no, you are the son of the devil. In fact... You are the enemy of righteousness. You are full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop from making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Every single one of those statements constitutes what God the Holy Spirit thinks of anyone who would oppose his truth, his word, and would set themselves up as the arbiter of whether or not what his word clearly says is reasonable, or is acceptable, or is good. And and they twist and dilute and change and pervert his word in any way so as to try to make it more palatable to unbelievers and sinners in this world people who do that do not ever do it innocently or just out of naivete or because they just don't understand enough. They do it as children of the devil who Jesus said in John 8 is the father of lies. They do it as the enemies of true righteousness, the righteousness of God which they stand in judgment over and declare to be unacceptable to the extent that they don't like it until they can twist it and distort the Bible's revelation of God's law and holiness to suit the depraved desires of this world. They do it in villainy. They do it in deceit, preferring for people to approve of them offering lies rather than for people to reject them for standing for truth. And, and every time people do this kind of thing, they make crooked the straight paths of the Lord because they have the temerity to look at the straight paths of God's Word who says what He says and it is unambiguously clear. And they have the temerity to say, if that's what it means, it's not safe. To walk upon that path. And then they presume to change. What it says. To make it more suitable. According to the world's fallen. And self world and corrupt sinful desires. Well Paul. Saw right through it. And Paul wasn't having any of it. Paul was not willing to concede. One inch. And it wasn't because he had some. Personal sense of superiority here. Hey I'm. I'm Paul. I was chosen by Christ. Who's this magician sorcerer who's going to stand against me? Paul had no personal skin in this game. Paul said what he said and did what he did in confronting Elymas because of an unashamed, unflinching, uncompromising commitment to the absolute and final authority of the Word of God. What happened to, as a result? What happened to Elymas? What happened to Elymas was, in God's providence, a perfect metaphor for Elymas' unbelief. The hand of the Lord through Paul caused Elymas the sorcerer to be plunged into blindness, into literal physical darkness. He, it says he literally he couldn't even see the sun the brightest thing that there is to see. He couldn't even see it if he was staring right at it. No light was visible to him and he had to find people to lead him around by the hand because his soul and his mind were committed to darkness, see? And he would not approve of the light of God's Word. So see, here's the point. Unbelief is not just objectively reasonable people with a completely neutral approach to the understanding of the world and of God and of what's right and what's wrong. It's not people in this neutral objectivity struggling... Understandably, because it's really hard to understand. It's not, it's not them struggling to make sense of it all because it's fundamentally hard to understand or, or fundamentally hard to reasonably believe everything that God has revealed in His Word. It's not fundamentally unreasonable or irrational. What it is, God's truth, the straight ways of God's Word, what it is is fundamentally unacceptable to people who refuse to submit to God who has clearly revealed himself, his divine power, his holy nature, because they are unwilling to submit because they are willfully committed to their unrighteousness, to doing what's right in their own eyes and going after their own way, to placing their own desires and their own reason above and over God and his word. Jesus' own assessment of it, of what unbelief actually is. It is people loving darkness rather than light. We all know John 3.16, right? Most of us at least have maybe had that verse memorized since we were little kids. Heard it over and over in Sunday school. Heard it all growing up, taught and recited over and over again, which is great because... What an awesome verse John 3:16 is, right? What an awesome truth it is that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Hallelujah. Amen. How about the next few verses in John three? Do you have a good grasp on those also? We should. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Very positive gospel truth, right? In in John 3.16 and 17 and the first part of 18. But never ever stop until Jesus is done proclaiming both sides of the coin. Whoever believes is not condemned, amen, hallelujah. What about those who don't believe? Jesus says, whoever does not believe is already condemned. Because, see, there's nothing innocent about unbelief. There's nothing reasonable, there's nothing rational about unbelief. Unbelief is not just a matter of not getting it, not understanding it. Unbelievers aren't just ignorant. They're condemned already by God because of their unbelief. Why? Well, Jesus tells us because the unbeliever has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And why not? Because it's not reasonable to believe? Because they just couldn't settle their mind on it? No. Jesus says, here's the judgment, here's the verdict, here's why. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's why unbelief exists and that's what unbelief is. All unbelief exists, not because the truth is hard to understand, All unbelief exists because people love the darkness rather than the light. They're in a pitch black cave. And the glorious light of life and truth and love are shining through the entrance. And it's not that they can't see it. It's not that they can't understand it. It's that they don't want it. Because they don't want Him. Who is the light of the world? Who is the light of life? Because they don't want to admit that they need him. And they don't want to submit their wills and their minds to him. Because then their lives would no longer be their own. And they'd have to do what he wants instead of what they want. And so because what they want is darkness, because what they want is evil, they suppress the truth and reject the light. They prefer to make crooked the straight paths of God's Word and God's will because they love the darkness rather than the light. But then on the other hand, isn't it absolutely glorious when God graciously, when God mercifully (laughs) brings us into the light and causes the blind to see and frees us from the bondage of our sin and of death. That's what had happened to Saul, right? Christ came and physically blinded him too. Consigned him to physical darkness for a time because of the blackness of his heart and unbelief. And then Christ mercifully opened his eyes, caused the scales to, to fall off of his eyes. Gave him back his physical sight and much, much more caused the light of the gospel to pierce and shatter the darkness of his soul and of his mind. And look, that's what ended up happening also to Sergius Paulus, the proconsul of Cyprus. Well, Elemus, the false prophet, because of his unbelief, because he opposed God's word, because he, twisted it and perverted it and made it crooked. He stumbled away in blindness and darkness. But Paulus, the Roman consul of Cyprus, he believed. He was astonished, not just by what had happened to Elemas, but specifically, Luke says, he was astonished by the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished by the Word of God. Because God's word will not be and cannot be opposed any more than God Himself can be opposed, any more than darkness can oppose the light. You can be in the darkest cave in the deepest recesses of the earth, and if you turn on a light, it is not dark anymore. Because by definition, light pierces darkness. And that leaves us with this. Look, look what happened here in Cyprus. Look how God providentially used Saul and Barnabas and caused the power of His Word to pierce the darkness. So the question is, what are we afraid of? Look what God did in the face of opposition. What can we be intimidated by? What opposition is there in this world that we think, that we imagine, might be able to stand against God's Word? Who can oppose us? Is it some some ruler? Is it some governor? Sergius Paulus came to faith when he was encountered by the divine truth of God's Word and its power. Is it it some opponent who can raise up some objection, some argument, some sophistry against God's Word? Do we have to fear going out and teaching God's Word that somebody is going to out-argue God's Word? Have some more powerful argument than God's Word? Elemas had to slink away in, in the shame of darkness and blindness and unbelief. When God's word encountered him. And every single Lord's Day we come to worship this God and to bask in the light of his truth and his love. And to remember the fact that he cannot be opposed. His word cannot be opposed. The gates of hell will not withstand the church of Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ builds His church. And we come to sing His praises. And we come to be filled with power and filled with grace to be able to go out and say, I am bold enough to believe that God can do here what He did in Antioch, what He did in Cyprus, what He did to Elymas, what He did to the proconsul. Every Lord's Day we come And we proclaim that Jesus is victorious over Satan. That even though people love darkness rather than the light, that the darkness cannot overcome the light. My dear friend who used to be a pastor here in the darkness of Santa Cruz County, Andrew Sandlin, recently said, and I think it was so profound and so salient, he said, Every Lord's Day is a reminder that Satan is a cosmic loser. And with this passage in Acts 13 under our belt, with God's all-powerful word beneath our feet, can we say amen to the fact that every Lord's Day is a reminder that Satan is a cosmic loser because Christ is victorious? And the light always triumphs over the darkness. O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ, our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. And with shield of faith and belt of truth, we will stand against the devil's lies. An army bold, whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Let's pray together this morning and then sing in faith and sing in confidence and give praise to the fact that God is the God of all power and that He is present with us in truth and in love and in light in our lives. Pray with me. Our Father and our God, in the darkness of this world and in the face of those who would oppose Your truth, And in the face of many discouragements in our lives, God, we need encouragement from Your Word. We need comfort from Your Holy Spirit. We need strength and we need boldness to stand firm, to be unbending, to be uncompromising, and to insist that everything that God says is true, whether we understand it or like it or approve of it or not. It's not God said it and I believed it, so that makes it true it's God said it and that makes it true and so father we pray would you energize your church would you encourage your people continue to stand firm to continue to be faithful to continue to proclaim the truth and stand for what is right and good and beautiful in this world according to what you have declared it to be Father, may we never be guilty of making crooked what you have said to be straight. May we always be faithful by the power of your grace alone in rightly dividing the word of truth and in bringing the light of the truth and the love of Jesus Christ into the darkness of this world. Father, give us your grace this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand with me then. And on page 9, let's all raise our voices and sing to God as we proclaim, O church, arise and put your armor on.